0: All right, Uh, time for the main message this morning. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 and 12 this morning. As we continue our look at the Trinity, and we are on part four of this particular series. I hope you've been blessed by it. I hope you've uh, learned some new things um, about where to find uh, this information about uh, God's revelation about himself in Scripture. This morning we look at another aspect of that. And we're reading from Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, which says, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again that you have blessed us with your holy word, that you have preserved it for us and that it is trustworthy just as you are trustworthy. And we pray this morning that as we look into your word that you would be teaching us directly, that our hearts would be open, Lord, to learning from you. And I pray that your spirit would be teaching us this morning that every word I speak would only come because of what you've given me. I thank you once again for this precious time that we have And I pray that you'd be glorified through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we focused on the revelation of the Trinity in the plan and the act of salvation. There is only one Saviour the Bible teaches. And yet we discovered that God is called the Saviour in the Old Testament. and In the New Testament, God is called the Saviour. So it's consistent but it also calls Jesus the Saviour as well. Um, And that is an indication that the Trinity is true because God says there is only one. So Jesus can't be different to God. Previously, we saw that the scriptures clearly teach that there is only one creator and that he did all the creating by himself. In fact, he says he did all the creating all alone. Yet the scriptures also teach that the Son of God was involved in creation, the Word. And the Holy Spirit was present and involved in creation too. Once again, another indication that the Trinity is true. Over the past few weeks, we have seen that to establish the truth of the Trinity, you just need to prove that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and that these three are persons who can interact with each other and have certain roles that are distinct from each other. This is exactly what we see occurring and what we see taught in the scriptures. I'd now like to look at one particular attribute of God uh, and how it is used to describe all three, both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, one of the distinguishing attributes of God that makes Him different from everyone and everything else is that He is eternal and everlasting. He is not like his creation, confined to time. He is not subject to it. He is not restrained by it. He is not subject to time at all. He made time. Unlike us who are locked in time, he is not. We are bound to a particular point in time. We do not have the ability to view our tomorrow nor to relive our past. We cannot directly see and influence anything other than our permanent now. That's where we live. We only live in the now. But God can not only see the future and the past in perfect detail, he can influence it in any direction that he likes. That's why he can tell you the end from the beginning. We're going to look at some scriptures now that teach that all three persons of the Trinity are eternal in nature. Remember, only God is eternal in nature. There is no being who has been eternal from the point of view that he doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. Every created thing has a beginning. Every one. Every angel has, every person has, the world has, all of creation has a beginning. God is the only one who does not. Let's look at some uh, scriptures which speak about this. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Now we pretty much all know who Abraham was. Abraham was uh, the father of faith. Um, He was the one who God chose um, and he made many promises to Abraham, which we enjoy today. Now in Genesis 21, 33, it says, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord. Now, once again, do you see the word Lord? Your Bible will have that all in capitals. That means that's God's name there. So what it says, he called there on his name specifically. And then it finishes that verse with the everlasting God. So God, the Bible teaches, is everlasting. There is no limit. To where in time he exists. Let's look at what it says about the Son. So God is everlasting, we know that. Go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from, of old, from everlasting. In this classic verse, which speaks about the birthplace of the Messiah, yes, where Jesus was born, it also says that this Messiah, who would one day rule to be, uh, rule Israel, to be the ruler of Israel, has been around from old. Yeah, okay, from everlasting. Well, there is only one who has been around from Everlasting, and that is God. So by simple logic, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C as well. If only God is eternal and the Messiah is eternal, then the Messiah must be God. Jesus, therefore, must be God because it says that he is clearly eternal. This scripture points directly to Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, who is the Messiah and who will be the ruler of Israel in the future. The verse our church has chosen to identify ourselves, our our church verse, as you might call it, um, speaks the same truth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 is our church verse. And it says, and many of you know it, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, the point of this verse is to proclaim the unchanging nature and eternal nature of Jesus Christ, because he's not only the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. Because of his dual nature, he is both Lord, which means the Master of everyone, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, as the Lamb of God. Only God can be the same, though, yesterday, today, and forever. Only God can be the same, for only this God can. Uh, fulfill this specific um, definition for every yesterday, for every today, and for every tomorrow. You see, this verse is true at any point in time. So it doesn't matter how far back you go, God is always there yesterday. And it doesn't matter how far forward you go, God is always there tomorrow. So this verse is speaking about the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God who never changes. You know, this is one of the main themes in the entire book of Hebrews. The writer makes a number of arguments to prove why the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. So they had priests and a high priest in the Old Testament, and that was instituted under Moses. We call that Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. Um, and one of the arguments made in the book of Hebrews um, why Jesus is a better priest and a more perfect priest than that, than that system is that he is the only perfectly sinless priest who has ever existed. You know, when, when you compare Jesus to every priest that came before him and every high priest that came before him who had to, the Bible says, had to offer up first a sacrifice for their own sins before they offered a sacrifice for everyone else's sins. Only Jesus didn't have to do that. In fact, before he offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice, he didn't have to do anything else. He was already sinless. But in addition to this, the writer argues that this New Testament, which we enjoy, this new covenant, this new agreement, which we enjoy um, because of Jesus Christ, Um, One of the reasons it's so much better than the Old Testament is because of the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. That's what makes him also a superior priest for us or an intercessor between us and God. While all other priests died and die, including the high priest, he never dies. So he's always able to make intercession on behalf of all believers. Because of this, the writer of Hebrews argues that he is uh, not a priest of the order of Aaron or the order of Levi, but he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. There are literally just three or four verses that speak about this person, Melchizedek, whom Abraham had an encounter with, but God was able to elaborate a lot more about his, very, his nature which is very very interesting in the book of Hebrews. So if you turn with me there, the Bible says that Jesus is a priest according to this specific order of priest. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21, and we'll have a bit of a look at what makes this individual so interesting and what he has to do with the eternal nature of God. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21 says, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is he speaking of? By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. A better testament is a better covenant or agreement with God, better than the old one. And they truly were many priests because... They were not suffered to continue by reason of death, which means they couldn't keep on going because they all died. But this man, Jesus, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So what's the argument? Jesus is part of an eternal and unchanging priesthood, which came well before Aaron. See, Abraham met Melchizedek before Aaron and the the Levites became priests. This is because Jesus lives forever, which is the, the benefit that we have here. Instead of relying on a priest who lives, has his own sins and then dies... And then you have to go to someone else to pray to God on your behalf or to intercede on your behalf of the sacrifice. The benefit here is that Jesus never dies. Never dies. He is eternal, apart from being sinless. And it's another one, it's it's what we rely on, and that's why he can save us to the uttermost. He is always making intercession for us. But the writer then goes on to give a lot more information about this particular priest which also declares that he is a king as well. So Melchizedek, if Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek and not of Aaron and his, and his sons, um, what does it say about him? Well, it says he was a king as well, a king. Well, pay attention to what he was king of and what his nature was in terms of his lifespan and lineage. Pay careful attention to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 4. Well, i just get myself a drink. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, who whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now who do you give a tenth to? Well, You give a tenth to God, right? But, have a think about it. Have a think of what you just read about this specific person who met Abraham many, many years ago. In fact, around 1,700 years before Jesus was born. But many wonder about the identity of this particular person and wonder who he was and where he came from. Why does the scripture say here that Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek and not a Aaron? Because Melchizedek, was clearly eternal. The conclusion is inescapable here. Have a look at the evidence about who he is. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Meaning he wasn't really an earthly king at all. He wasn't really the king of a a, a city or place like that. It says he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Hmm... But aren't these attributes that God clearly describes to himself? I mean, who is righteous in this world? Which king is righteous in this world? And which and who do we know as the prince of peace? Now, let's continue. He didn't have a father or mother. No. He didn't have any ancestors, for that matter. Uh, by all definitions, how can he even be human? If he doesn't have a father or a mother or any answers that went before him, um, now's the clincher. He had no beginning and there's no end to his life. But he was like the son of God. You know what? Only God is eternal. Only God has no beginning and no end. Only God has no mother or father and doesn't need one. Only God has no end. Uh, ancestors who went before him. Melchizedek was a manifestation of the Son of God before he came to the earth to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The Son of God came down as Melchizedek around 1700 years before he would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek was the son of God. He was Melchizedek. He is eternal because he is God. Only God has no beginning or end of days. Not even an angel has a beginning, has has not a beginning. He has to have a beginning. So Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because the Son of God came in that person before he was born, because he is the same person. Let's look at what it says about the Holy Spirit though. So we we know that God the Father is eternal and everlasting. We know that the Son is eternal and everlasting and has this eternal priesthood with no beginning and no end. But it also tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal as well. And this is the very point of the first verse in Genesis. Genesis starts, Genesis 1, 1 starts with, in the beginning, God. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God came to being. It just says, in the beginning, God was already there. In in other words, wherever, wherever there is a beginning, God is already there. And what we see in that beginning is that he made the beginning and the Holy Spirit And the Word were already there. The Holy Spirit was already hovering over the face of the waters. He was already active. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, again, the Holy Spirit is called eternal as well. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Remember what we're doing here. We're looking to see what the Bible says about the eternal nature of God, because only He is everlasting and eternal. And it's, it's saying that God the Father is eternal, God the Son is eternal, and now we're going to read that the Holy Spirit is eternal. They're all described as eternal. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a wonderful picture of salvation, performed and completed by God himself. The blood of Christ offered through the Spirit to God the Father. There's a Trinity in our salvation. And in this this particular verse, it speaks of the Spirit as being eternal. We serve an amazing God. We serve a living God, living because he doesn't need anyone else to live. He doesn't require anything else to live. In fact, he was already there in the beginning and he will be there in the end and he will outlive and pre-live anything else in the whole of creation. God is eternally living. The scriptures make it so clear that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and that he was already existing before the world was formed and the Holy Spirit is... Um, Already was already existing and is eternal as well. That the conclusion is inescapable. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. As we look at now, we go back to this to the Son of God, we go back to Jesus' pre existent state before he was born. John chapter 1, verse 1 says to us very clearly, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Just as the first verse of Genesis starts with in the beginning, John also says in the beginning. John clearly states the Son of God was not only there in the beginning as the Word, but was distinct from God the Father, because it says not only says he was he was with god it says he was god so how can god how can the word be god and be with god at the same time because the point john is trying to make here is that god the son is distinct from god the father they are both god but they were together but distinct the trinity explains this verse in fact If there is no Trinity, then John 1, 1 and 1, 2 doesn't make sense. How can God, how can the Word be God and be with God at the same time? Only the Trinity explains this verse. We also find that once His mission on earth was complete, the Son of God in Jesus Christ prayed to His Heavenly Father which reinforces the point even more. Turn forward to John chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. John chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. Have a listen to what Jesus says to his Father in heaven when he prays. Now he's he's come to on a rescue mission. God the Father has sent him to save mankind from sin. And he is about to be handed over to the authorities and about to be crucified. His job is pretty much done because that he did everything that he, he did perfectly to that point. And now he was about to be betrayed. John chapter 17, verse 4 says, I have glorified thee on the earth. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Did you hear that? Jesus was perfectly aware that he was glorified with the Father before the world was ever created. And now he sought to be glorified once again with God's own glory that he had put aside when he humbled himself to become a man. And just as a side point, the scripture says that God will not give his glory to another. In Isaiah 42 verse 8, if you want to mark this one down, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God says He won't share His glory with anyone else. Only God is to be glorified. Therefore, Jesus, if Jesus is asking the Father to be glorified as He was before all of creation, then what Jesus is essentially saying is that He was God before. But I'm digressing. The point is that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, was eternally existent with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the world was ever created. And this brings me to the point of this thing that we enjoy as believers called eternal security. And we're going to be studying that this afternoon in our, our discipleship study. Um, the, the beauty of our salvation is that once we receive it as a gift, it's eternally secure. It can't be lost. It is a permanent condition that we enjoy forevermore. God grants eternal life to those who put their trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Once you put your son in Jesus, the Bible says you cannot lose that because that gift then changes the course of your eternity forever. It changes you as a person forever and it locks you into our salvation. That ticket that Christ has bought, once you receive it, cannot be lost like a paper ticket because you are then sealed with that ticket. We enjoy eternal security. We are given eternal life and it is eternal life because God grants it. There is no other being without beginning or end, right? Only God can claim this for himself. Only he stands outside of time. And because he is all-powerful and he is the eternal one and eternally alive, only he can grant eternal life to those who put their trust in him. Only he can give that security. It is because of the Trinity that we can be eternally secure in God's hand and never, ever be lost. Look at the following verses which speak about this. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 28 with me. Now, listen to Jesus' words here. In John 10, verse 28, he says, And I give unto them eternal life. Now, this is Jesus saying he's giving people eternal life, okay? And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. What's Jesus saying here? How can Jesus give us eternal life unless he is eternal himself? That's the point. Only God can give eternal life and then make sure that you get to keep it forever because he is there eternally. He was there from the beginning and he's going to be there forevermore. And Jesus says they shall never perish. That's why when when you're born again, you can't ever die again. Yes, there are people who play the Christian game, who do the Christian things, who may read their Bible, may pray and go to church. Some of them are not saved. But if you are genuinely saved, you cannot ever be lost because Jesus guarantees it. To be given eternal life means it's eternal, not just temporary. And to say that they shall never perish can't be true if you can be saved and then lost again. And then he goes on to say, no one can take them out of my hand. If you can be tempted by someone else to turn away from Jesus. Well, that can't be true then. Otherwise, Jesus' words aren't true. So Jesus says here, he gives eternal life and guarantees the security of that person. And look at the next verse. In verse 29, he says, my father, which gave them me. Is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So, once again, God the Father secures a person's um, uh, salvation and gives them eternal security. So God the Son gives us eternal life. So God the Father gives those people to, to Jesus. Jesus gives them eternal life. They are both held by the Son and the Father. And gives who else? Hold you eternally secure. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In whom ye also trusted, we're trusting in Jesus, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This passage teaches that not only are we held in the hand of the Son and the hand of the Father, But it also says the Holy Spirit seals us unto the day when that ticket finally is cashed in and is redeemed and we are home to be with the Lord forever. And we are as surely sealed by the Holy Spirit as we are held in the hand of the Father and of the Son. It's the eternal nature of God. That gives those who have trusted him for salvation great confidence that he will always be with us because he never dies. And because he sits outside of time, we need not fear what will come tomorrow because he always keeps his promises. And because we know certain things to be true and sure. The first thing is that he will always be with us because he is eternal. He will always be with us. Jesus promises us this in a familiar passage that guarantees the Trinity will be with us as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Now Jesus is telling his apostles, telling his disciples, before he heads back to the Father, they have a job to do. And their job is to be witnesses of him spread the gospel into the world, to share the truth of what God had done for mankind. So Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen for that. Jesus is with us until the end that he will never ever leave us nor forsake us. But did you see the Trinity? The Trinity is mentioned in this passage where Jesus prom- makes us that promise. Look at verse 19. It's an amazing verse. It mentions the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And there, these three are mentioned in the one place. But what you may not have picked up on is that There is only one name. You see, it doesn't say baptize them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Ghost. No, no, no. It says that these three exist as one. There is one name for these three. Now, I don't know three different people that have the same name that we're baptizing them under, but this is clearly telling us that these three have one name. This is the one God. This is the great I am. The eternal one. The I am. The one who is never not. The one who is never not. The one who is always I am. This means that, and this is good news for us, that come what may, God will always keep his promises. He is the only one who can. This means that when Jesus promises to come again, to bring us home to be with him, he'll surely do it. When he promises one day to come with all of his saints and the angels to this world and to become the king of kings and lord of lords in this world, he'll definitely do it. Because... In his eternity, in his eternal nature, it's already a done deal. It's already done. Because of his eternal nature, God calls himself the first and the last. You'll notice that that scripture passage that we read first up. God calls himself in the Old Testament, I am the first and I am the last. The first because he is before all other things. The last because he outlasts all things and already exists in the future before we even get there. So he is before all things, he is first, but he is also last because he is already there before I even get there. I want to share just some scripture verses regarding this first and last because to be called the first and last means that you're calling yourself eternal before everything else and after everything else. Look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 with me for a moment. Just as we just reread that particular verse. And then I'm going to bring you all the way forward to Revelation. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it? For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob in Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. And I also am the last. There is no other being that can call themselves the first and the last. If Jesus is a created being, he couldn't possibly call himself the first and the last, could he? No other angel can call himself the first and the last. No person can call themselves the first and the last. God himself calls himself the first and the last because he is eternal in nature and only he can call himself that name. So let's see where this phrase is used again because it comes up again in the book of Revelation right at the end. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. The fact that God is a first and last means he's going to fulfill every promise that he's ever made. And we can have confidence in that. And that's why eternal security is so, so awesome. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This is John speaking here, all right? John the Apostle. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Here, obviously, God is reintroducing himself again. John says, I heard the voice of a trumpet, and this voice says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Well, who is that? Well, that's God. In fact, he even adds another phrase to it now. He says he is Alpha and Omega, which is simply the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So when it says first and last, he's just now telling you it in Greek as well. First letter, last letter. But John then turns to see who's speaking. And he sees a man, he describes a man. If you want to read that in your own time, I I encourage you to do that. But between verses 11 to 17, have a bit of a read of that when you get a chance. But essentially, John turns to see who's speaking. And he sees a man. He sees a man. He's he a man with hair white like wool, eyes like fire. He says his legs are like cast iron that are in a furnace. He has a voice like many waters. But he sees a man. And John falls down at his feet. And look at what happens in verse 17. Revelation one seventeen says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. I am the first and the last. Yeah, this is God. But when was God dead? How can God, who is eternal, die? Because he's, this is speaking of the Son of God, who was Jesus Christ, who became a man, and he died as a man. This can only be Jesus Christ here. Only Jesus was alive and dead and is alive forevermore. But this is speaking of using the same phrase as God used of himself in the Old Testament. Yes, he is the first and the last. Look at Revelation. Now let's go to the right at the end of the book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Look at what it says there. Look at the promise that we have and why we can rejoice regardless of what this world, what the condition of this world is, regardless of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Jesus is saying here, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So the first and the last is coming quickly, and he's going to reward men according to their works. Who is the first and the last? Go to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Remember what he said right at the beginning? Write these things to the churches. That's that's who was speaking to John. That's who John saw. That's who's coming quickly. And Jesus says, I've sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And just to close it off, look at verse 20 and 21. He which testifies of these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Who's the first and the last? Jesus the first and the last. Who calls himself the first and the last in the Old Testament? God calls himself the first and the last. Who is eternal? Only God. Jesus is the first and the last. God the Father is the first and the last. The Holy Spirit is the first and the last, the eternal one. You and I can have great confidence as we look forward to the coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we have an amazing hope that the world doesn't have because we worship the first and the last, the eternal one, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. There is no chance that he will die in the meantime and not come to rescue us. What an amazing hope we have. If you have Christ, if you have put your faith in the Son of God, then you have a hope, you have a wonderful future that the world cannot even understand. Rejoice in that hope. As you see the working of the Trinity in the eternal life that you've been given. So I'm going to close with one verse to wrap this up for you. Our hope is in God who has revealed himself in the Bible as the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. The only eternal one. The only everlasting one. The only first and last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Look at Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, that we have a blessed hope. And what's what's the encouragement? It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Did you read that? Did you see that? The glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will be here. He is coming to this world. He will be coming to take his children to be with him. He is coming to take all the ones that have put their faith in him to be with himself. And we have a blessed hope because he will reveal himself one day, maybe very soon. But Jesus is the great God and Saviour that we are looking forward to seeing one day. Do you have that hope this morning? Do you have the eternal security from having received salvation as a gift from God? Or are you still trying to work your way to heaven? The Bible teaches that we don't get to heaven by works. Yeah, Jesus rewards works, but you don't get to heaven by works. Because he did the work to get you there in the first place. He did the work to open the door for you in the first place. And the Bible says that he wants to come into your life to save you. And the Bible says, and he puts it in a, the Revelation puts it in a beautiful way, that he knocks, he stands at the door and knocks. And you'll only knock. You have to open to him. If you haven't received him, if you haven't let him into your life, if you haven't acknowledged him as Lord and Saviour, then you stand in peril today of eternal destruction. You see, we are all made now beings that will last forever. The question is will you will spend your forever. God wants you to spend it with him. God wants to give you an amazing hope. He wants to give you a bright future. But the choice is really yours. The choice is whether you accept the gift that he's he's got ready for you or you reject it. If you reject it, you reject the provision that God has made for the payment of your sins. If you reject the sacrifice that he made for you on the cross at Calvary, if you reject all that, then you will have to pay for your own sins. And that's your choice. But in the end, there are only two places that you can possibly be, with God or not with God. And the alternative is terrible. So I encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins, turn from them and turn to him and receive Him as Lord and Saviour, do it without delay. Because you don't know whether you will die tomorrow, whether you will last another day, These bodies are dying. These bodies are broken. They're not eternal. So I invite you this morning to receive Christ if you haven't received him. For those of you who have, you have an amazing hope because we serve a God who is eternal in all things. God bless you all. I hope you have an awesome week. Remember, keep the faith.